Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. So we have been talking about our book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, and that's bias in capitals with the S being a dollar sign, a guide to improving financial decision-making. That is out, and uh, this is uh, being recorded in November of 2019, and so we're very excited that that is uh, available to our listeners and to a wide array of readers. So uh, that book is aimed at financial practitioners, people involved in investing, people who want to know more about the brain and their behavior. So that is uh, ready to go. So look for that on Amazon or look at the Mental Models podcast website and you'll find more details on that. So today's topic is going to be very relevant. Of course, uh, we talk a lot about best practices for your investing and that is the focus for today. We've already done podcast episodes on idea sourcing and idea vetting, how you'd go about that and what are some of the challenges involved. Today's topic is going to be about fundamental research on a company and this is everything from how you uh, approach that, as well as the challenges that might be addressed by different practices. So if you've already listened to those prior two podcasts, this is the third in that series. And uh, we will be focusing very much on work from chapter eight of our book. So we do a series of chapters on a variety of different biases. And throughout, we include tips on how to avoid those biases as you get here in this podcast. Chapter 8 is our big summary of the full process of how you go about identifying potential opportunities and then getting into the details of how one would do a uh, proper job of addressing um, behavioral biases throughout. So we'll turn this over to George next on what's the fundamental research process like and what are the steps? So after we have identified an idea, we have vetted it to try to be efficient uh, with respect to uh, not, not spending too much time doing fundamental research on something that we ultimately won't, won't invest in, we engage in the fundamental research process. And typically that entails looking at SEC documentation, including financial statements and uh, any sort of relevant trade publications. We'll often go and look at company presentations that they'll provide at investment conferences, try to understand the strategy that the company has from a competitive standpoint. We'll look at competitors, and we may look at their SEC documentation as well. We will analyze how management is incented, on what metrics are they going to be assessed and compensated, what is the behavior of that management in terms of their purchasing and sales of company securities, which have to be disclosed with the SEC on Form 4. Uh, under Section 16. We'll also look at uh, whatever products are being produced by the company and think about those in relation to their competitors' products. What may drive a consumer of those products or a customer to use the product that's produced by the company relative to a substitute? Would you be willing to pay a premium for that product, which may be indicative of some sort of competitive advantage? And then, of course, we will go and conduct interviews with customers or uh, with competitors, suppliers, whoever it is that we can manage to talk to. 
There's some good resources for things like that, like LinkedIn. You can find former employees often and talk to them about the business. And uh, you can review company litigation. So if you get a Pacer account, for instance, you can put in a company uh, that you're analyzing, and uh, there will often be various litigation that could be product-related. It could be some sort of a consumer products claim. It could be a uh, contractual litigation is often helpful. Sometimes you'll find employment litigation, which we tend to avoid. So anyway, there's a lot of nuance associated with all the various methods and resources that you can tap into to be able to create a fundamental picture. Ultimately, what you're trying to do when you're doing fundamental analysis is to understand the competitive positioning of the business and then to derive the value of the business based off of its ability to generate free cash flow, either now or into the future, and to create a model, a predictive model, of what you think the development of fundamental aspects of the business will lead to in, from an operational standpoint. Uh, and then ultimately how, uh, how Wall Street and other investors will view the stock as these various developments come to life. So this strikes me as something where you're taking a lot of authorship in the idea and ownership over the idea, which is important because if you receive ideas from others, you inherit a whole variety of assumptions that you don't have a lot of details on. So one advantage of doing this type of real deep dive into the company is that you're going to gain a real detailed uh, perspective on the uh, investment position before you engage in it. But the downside of that, of course, is that you are perhaps going to develop your own narrative, which may contain a variety of assumptions, and you can start to get confident that you are correct. And that's one of the things we have to guard against when we go about uh, forming an impression and assigning a value on something complex like a business. So that's absolutely correct. That's one of the dangers associated with having ideas from others or looking at sell-side research associated with an idea that you're analyzing. So sell-side research, of course, being uh, institutional brokerages that then write research pieces like Bank of America, uh, Merrill Lynch, and uh, Goldman Sachs, or, or any a number of smaller firms that may publish financial projections of where they think the business will be going forward. If you look at something like that beforehand or any sort of research report that's produced by another investor, you may start to anchor around the assumptions and the thesis that has been provided by those third parties, uh, and that may unduly influence your assessment of the business as you start to review information, and you may actually sink you know, through confirmation bias, information that's consistent with that narrative as opposed to information that may be contrary to the insights that are provided uh, in your initial assessment. So two important biases there, the first one being anchoring or anchoring an adjustment, it is sometimes called. And this is one of the classic biases that was discussed in the psychological literature many decades ago. Classic bias researchers Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman had done some initial work on this that's sort of the classic in the field. And one of their uh, examples was they would bring people into a room and they would have a wheel of numbers that were labeled one to a hundred, kind of a wheel of fortune. They would spin that and it would land on a particular arbitrary number. Then they would ask people a uh, sort of difficult estimation question. One of theirs was how many African nations are currently in the UN? And if the wheel had said something like 50, they might produce an estimate of around 45. 
nations. But if the uh, wheel had landed on 10, they might see only 15 nations. So people were arbitrarily anchored based on whatever number had come up. And this was particularly interesting because they could obviously tell this was an arbitrary number. It had really no bearing whatsoever on the judgment. So uh, that's uh, a good example of how tricky this particular bias can be. Uh, We have a difficult time thinking in numbers. Uh, We don't often have numerical evidence uh, in our lives. And so perhaps whenever a number arrives, we have this danger of focusing too much on it. Now, the adjustment piece of anchoring is relevant here too. So uh, not only do you start to sort of zero in on that number, the bias is a failure to adjust sufficiently off of that number. And so that just, it's sort of a psychological anchoring. And this can also relate to ideas, not just numerical information, but sometimes when an idea has been put forward, we take it as credible. And and even if it's off the mark, we somehow don't adjust enough off of it. And this is true of discredited information as well. So there's a minority opinion that proves to be wrong. It's actually quite difficult for people to truly discount it because it's sort of been out there. It's embedded in some ways in your psychological model of things. We're just biased to maybe think too much about that bias. So clearly what will happen here is you have an idea that you've found and you think that it's interesting to avoid this anchoring issue. It's really important to avoid looking at any sort of financial analysis that makes projections of future earnings that may be provided by a third-party service or, you know, such as a a sell-side brokerage or uh, from someone else who's pitched the idea to you to begin with. An easy way to avoid this is, and this is something we tend to do at SaberPoint, whoever it is that has received the idea, you want to give the, basically put the onus on doing the fundamental research to an analyst that doesn't have any of these biases. They don't know. You know, of course, in your process, you, you make sure that any review of sell-side research uh, is done at the very end of the uh, process, at the end of the fundamental research uh, and the analysis process, uh, which is the next step that we'll talk about. And the only reason that you would want to look at sell-side is to see if there's a significant deviation from the numbers that you end up generating and the forecasts that you make and what the sell-side has come up with which would suggest that there's an investment opportunity if there is a large discrepancy between the two. Right. And when we talk about uh, anchoring bias, another important feature is, of course, confirmation bias. So uh, the conditions of confirmation bias tend to be when you are doing a lot of work yourself, you will develop your own sense or model of of how things are playing out. And then you start to take ownership of it and begin to uh, try to make sense of the world in light of that model. And so that's almost like you're too much in your own mind on what, what's going to happen, risking uh, getting blinded to alternatives. Anchoring almost has uh, other conditions where you are inheriting the idea or a number or an estimate from someone else, and uh, that risks giving that idea too much credibility and having an oversized waiting on your thinking. So like many biases, you're trying to find some type of sweet spot between doing your own independent analysis while also taking into account what others have said, uh, thereby kind of walking the middle path between those two biases. Yeah, so again, it's important, if you can, to separate uh, the person that's uh, doing the actual research uh, for the fundamental research side and then the person who's generating with the idea. Sometimes you can even enhance that project by uh, not telling the person 
whether it's a long idea or a short idea, so that they're approaching it with a pretty fresh slate. Another good practice to engage in once you have uh, finished doing uh, the initial analysis is to then share it with other people that aren't encumbered by all of the work that you've done. If you can basically share the idea with them uh, and hopefully they'll, they're also diligent investors, they'll conduct their own fundamental research and then engage into a dialogue with them to see if there's a significant deviation or emphasis on various information that you did not focus on that may tease out an alternative view that you're not giving an appropriate weight to. It's probably important to find a third party who's a bit of a contrarian, because if you kind of get someone who's likely to reinforce uh, your own conclusions, it, it will just make you more confident in all of the things you have uh, concluded yourself. So someone who's willing to take issue with some of the, uh, the fundamentals that you may have uh, pointed out, um, and you may be correct, and you, they may end up agreeing with you, but the exercise of sort of debating you know, alternative possibilities is important here. Try to bring in um, a check on one's assumptions um, and maybe getting another model of how things might play out just to really give that some serious consideration before you move forward. Another thing to think about when you're in the process of doing the fundamental research on an idea is to think about each of the underlying premises uh, upon various conclusions that you're drawing to what extent they're based. You can fall into a trap here uh, when you suffer from what's called the uh, knowledge illusion, where you look at a particular idea and perhaps there are some experts that have a scientific opinion that you assume to be correct because they're experts. And it's necessary uh, as a pillar in your analysis. So say, for instance, uh, that uh, you're analyzing the effects of, uh, well, we could talk about African swine fever, for instance. Uh, how quickly will hog herd be able to recover from this disease, which is limiting pork production? And then you go and you notice that there's an expert that makes an assessment that uh, it would take a very long period of time uh, for certain fundamental reasons. And you just assume that that's correct. You assume that you have that knowledge as well. You know, without going deeper into an assessment of that expert's opinion or see if it's widely held by others within the field. You want to be careful about jumping to conclusions based upon other people's work. Right. And the knowledge illusion tends to happen when you take a, uh, a position that, that you've really inherited from someone else. We have to do this, right, because we don't always have the expertise. But uh, one thing you can ask yourself is how well you understand that assumption what some of the mechanisms would be for that to play out. And the less you understand about it, uh, the more risk you face for the, the knowledge illusion. And what that really is, is a subjective sense that you understand something better than you actually do. And uh, there are some ways around that just by, you know, spend a little time deconstructing uh, that particular idea. And if you run out of ideas very fast on how that's really working, you probably shouldn't be confident in it. And it might pay off to do a little bit more actual discovery of what are the, what's the basics behind um, a particular situation. Now, you wouldn't do this all the time because there's a price involved. It's, it can be uh, time-consuming, and you may end up more confused than, than when you started. But uh, this is one of those that it's all about your subjective sense of importance 
And the risk is that we think we understand something more than we do. There's some nuance here as well. And this comes more in terms of later stages in the investment process. But if there is a critical assumption that you're making based off of uh, some sort of a very technical premise, one of the dangers associated with it, and I can, I can use a current example uh, to illustrate it, is that if the street or the average investor is going to be confused about a particular issue in a certain way, it can actually lead to a different investment outcome because they may perceive a, th- a certain threat, even though it doesn't necessarily come to light uh, or isn't the actual scientific justification or cause, but merely it being perceived that way and the mistake easily being made, it can have a very significant short-term effect on the stock. So here's an, an example. Uh, recently, in the last three months or so, there has been significant concern associated uh, with vaping-related illness. Uh, There were uh, a number of uh, people that were hospitalized because of their use of uh, vapor products, and the CDC actually came out at one point in time and suggested that all people stop vaping altogether uh, because of this concern. If you actually did the research associated with these individuals who were being hospitalized, there was a consistent thread of people using vapor with THC and vitamin E acetate, which is a thickening agent. Uh, In our shop, we did this, and we discounted the uh, possibility of uh, a likely harsh government reaction because we thought, well, this is not just run-of-the-mill vape products, so it's not likely to lead to uh, some sort of a negative outcome. It's actually this other situation where basically street drugs are being peddled uh, and people are getting illnesses associated with those. But the reality was that there is a pretty negative anti-vapor movement that was already uh, underway, and these illnesses were used as uh, evidence to support this position uh, that resulted in actual policy change. Donald Trump came out and publicly said that they would ban flavors uh, and he mentioned these vapor-related uh, illnesses as one of the justifications. Now, since then, uh, the CDC has come out and said that these illnesses were based off of vitamin E acetate used in conjunction with THC, uh, and it looks like the administration is backtracked. But equities that were involved, there's one called Turning Point Brands, uh, that stock depreciated from kind of the high 30s down to you know somewhere in the neighborhood of the low 20s based off of a lot of these issues. And of course, vapor sales have been affected negatively, but it's not. So sometimes finding the right answer is often not enough on its own, and others can become subject to uh, having the knowledge illusion and ultimately affect the share price of a particular company that is subject to that type of an issue even though that you may have the right answer, uh, the fact that the market has adopted an answer that's contrary to that can actually result in an undesirable outcome. Yeah, that's a really interesting case. So with the knowledge illusion, uh, one study comes to mind for me. Uh, Nathaniel Rabb and Steve Sloman did some interesting work, um, basically having people estimate their confidence levels, in particular conclusions about uh, research. So they'd come up with a sort of a fictional scenario like uh, scientists have discovered rocks that glow. This sounds a little Indiana Jones-like, which are fictional. 
But if they would include the information that experts fully understand the basis for this, people would rate their own understanding of it to be higher. And so this is a very sort of naive human tendency that we defer to experts. And so it's important to remember the market will do this also, that if, if experts have sort of come up with a conclusion and backed it or, or appear to have, um, people will uh, take that to be fact, maybe too quickly. So uh, I think that's a really good point. There can be the correct answer out in the world, but if people don't agree on that, then the world is going to be behaving differently than uh, as if they did. An easy way to overcome this type of an issue from clouding uh, an investment uh, candidate is you might think about the controversy that's associated with the particular issue to begin with. And there's there's a great investor here in Dallas by the name of Shad Rowe. And uh, Shad once said that if you're going to buy, invest in something, and he's a long investor, he doesn't short anymore. He used to be actually a a well-regarded short investor, but has since uh, decided to avoid the practice. He would always ask the question, does the product that's being produced, does it benefit the customers? Does it benefit the employees? And does it benefit the investors? Basically, is there this continuum of goodness or a benefit uh, that is being received by all the parties involved. And at least in the vape case, you know, you, you can make an argument uh, that there are definitely negative effects associated with some of the way those products are used uh, that doesn't meet that criteria. Now, that doesn't mean that you will not have situations where you can meet all three of those criteria and not still have issues associated with the knowledge illusion. But if you can go and tease out uh, investment ideas where there's not a lot of technicality involved, you can also avoid the possibility that you're going to be tripped up by this bias or that other investors may fall victim to that bias and therefore end up mispricing it, which could create an opportunity for you to purchase under certain circumstances. Uh, But nonetheless, you could just avoid that altogether by making sure that it's simple. Like for instance, if we think about something like Kellogg, right, that makes cereal, there's not a lot of expert opinion that we're going to have to rely on when we're making an investment in Kellogg. Right. And this is uh, relevant to the, the circle of competence idea that the further out you are from things you really understand, the, the more you're going to have to rely on assumptions, which can get really tricky. Um, I like that example with having to take the, sort of the, the multiple perspectives uh, viewpoint. That's helpful because Anytime you engage in, in trying to anticipate what others might be seeing, that's probably going to be informative. Uh, and it, if nothing else, it helps you keep aware that other viewpoints will exist, and you can be enriched by knowing about those. And that helps you to avoid that confirmation bias, because you're likely to sort of uh, uncover additional information just by the act of trying to anticipate, you know, how is someone else going to see this? Uh, we've sometimes talked about analogies uh, between an investment and uh, operating as a lawyer in a, in a legal case. And, and one of the key things there is that lawyers have to anticipate, you know, how is this information going to be received as an argument? How are others going to um, understand it? How are others going to appreciate it? And then also uh, think about how another side would counter. So that's a very useful way to think about this too, is you know, force yourself to imagine, what if the world <laughs> plays out to where this isn't true? What would that look like? You know, and you're obviously going to have to favor one view over another, but the, the act of thinking that through from another perspective or another alternative um, way on events may play out is, is helpful. Yeah, and one way you can duplicate that, 
uh, in an investment team, and this is more taxing in terms of resources, but you can go and have one person within the investment team uh, that is going to analyze a particular issue from a short perspective and another one that's going to analyze the same company from the perspective of going long without telling either of them what your predisposition is when you provide them with the idea. You can also do that if, you know, if you're an individual, perhaps you have an investment club that you work with and you can uh, engage somebody else to take an opposite view from uh, the bullish perspective that you may have and then uh, commit to them that you'll do the same for another issue that they come up with. So there are a number of these different approaches that you can take uh, to be able to limit the effects of anchoring uh, the knowledge illusion and confirmation bias in conducting your fundamental research. Ultimately, what you would like to do is to be able to get away from an approach that is deductive, uh, where you're starting off with a theory and then ultimately uh, providing facts as a uh, as justification for that theory, and move towards more of an inductive approach, where you're starting off without having some sort of a defined uh, objective that you're looking to achieve in your research or uh, to support a particular narrative, and then looking at the data and letting the data tell you what the narrative should be, and then coming up with a theory based off of the analysis of the data. It's very difficult to do, but uh, these different methodologies that we've talked about uh, in terms of either having a devil's advocate or somebody with the opposite bias that's conducting the information, seeking third-party uh, input, or separating the idea generation from uh, the person that it's actually conducting the analysis. These are all different methodologies that you can use to help you to that end. I would say with uh, conducting inductive reasoning, there's a few things that are important here. Uh, the strength of an inductive inference tends to be based on some re pretty reliable factors. One, uh, so just to, to start off with, you're, you're taking in uh, data without a strong uh, viewpoint that you're trying to impose on the data. You do have to organize the examples as they come in, but uh, the more examples you have, the stronger your inference is going to be. The, uh, the other thing is the more similar the examples are, the stronger the inference is going to be. So if you've seen the same thing play out uh, similarly across many, many uh, prior instances, you're going to have a very strong uh, type of inference here. M meanwhile, if you have a whole variety of uh, fairly weak and inconsistent data, um, that's not a lot to go on. And so forcing yourself to really take stock of you know, what are some examples or uh, factors that really bear on this? And, you know, really those add up to a stronger or weaker inference. Analogies are also relevant here. So um, analogies can be really helpful if they align and are mechanistically similar, but they can be really destructive if, if an analogy seems uh, superficially similar. So something in the same industry, for example, may have played out memorably. And if you over-rely on that, and it turns out to be more of a superficial analogy than a structural or mechanistic type analogy, that can be really difficult. So ultimately, inductive reasoning is about uh, coming up with that strong conclusion uh, based on a lot of evidence. So again, be like a lawyer and try to think of as much evidence you can rally to see if something is likely to play out the way you think it will. Yeah, I think that about wraps it up for the uh, fundamental research portion of the investment process. The next podcast that we will do in this series 
uh, will be in the analysis stage. That's right. And this is all following some uh, outline steps that we advocate for in chapter eight of the book. If you have the book already, uh, it's available both in print and in uh, electronic format from Amazon. Uh, This is page 159, in which we have a nice figure that outlines all of this. And uh, so these types of uh, process aspects that we cover here, if you want more of that detail in an easy-to-follow way, uh, you can pair that with actually following along in the book, I think, for this this series of podcasts on the, the steps of investing. That's great. And if you guys do manage to buy the book, we'd really appreciate any sort of review that you could give. That would help us out tremendously. Thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dana George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.